I am just going to begin today by diving right in and uh, reading the first 13 verses of Daniel chapter 2. And um, if you are able, as an expression of attentiveness and readiness to hear and trust and savor and treasure the words of God and His holy life-giving word, please stand with me and follow along. This is Daniel chapter 2 reading the first 13 verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation... You shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And he answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The king, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Thank you, Father in heaven. 
thank you that you reign over all things. We thank you that you are the king over all kings and the Lord of all, over all lords. We've already declared that, proclaimed that. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself. You are a mystery. Salvation in Christ Jesus is a mystery. That you, God, a holy God, would make a way for broken, lost, helpless, spiritually dead and spiritually unable people to be rescued and saved and renewed and forgiven and restored and adopted and blessed with every spiritual blessing. Thank you for disclosing who you are to us. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. And we have ears now to hear and listen to you now by your spirit. We open our hearts and our minds to you. We trust you to speak. Show us your will. Show us your glory. That we might have souls that are fully satisfied and you would get great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe that Daniel chapter 2 is fundamentally a call for God's people to pray. Prayer does not come to us naturally. Communing with God doesn't come to us naturally. The devil will do anything to keep us from communing with the Lord. And therefore, my goal in this sermon, with God's help, is to, is to sound an alarm and call you to pray. Not just because God's Word says so, but because we live in desperate times and the right response to desperate and difficult times is desperate and sometimes difficult prayer. The first 13 verses of Daniel chapter 2 set the stage for just an exceedingly tense and high drama situation. King Nebuchadnezzar had apparently been having a recurring dream. Verse 1 says Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. I don't think there were different dreams. They were many times the same dream. And this recurring dream troubled the king's thoughts in such a way that it troubled the king's spirit to the degree that it troubled the king's sleep. And he was, he was haunted. And those of you who have cares, great cares, know what it is to wake up in the night and and then lie awake at night with troubling thoughts. But there's another layer of trouble here. That being an apparent problem of trust. There was cause for suspicion on Nebuchadnezzar's part regarding the integrity of this Babylonian, let's just call them the ministry of magic. So in order to test their competence and their character, Nebuchadnezzar insists that they not simply offer an interpretation of his dream, he demands that they tell him the dream. And so when these experts in magic and spells and divination protest, saying essentially, <laughs> now you're asking for something beyond our pay grade, Nebuchadnezzar sentences them to death by dismemberment. 
And if that were not trouble enough, I think where the author really means for us to feel it is the last phrase of verse 13 when he says, when he writes, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So far this book, brief chapter or so, it's just been a roller coaster of dramatic events after the utterly soul-crushing death of God's holy city, Jerusalem. And then the utterly soul-sickening horror of the exile had suddenly turned in such a hopeful direction. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Ezra, they're all promoted. Of all the Jewish conscripts, none were found to be superior in terms of wisdom, understanding. Daniel chapter 1 verse 20 says that they were found to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in all Babylon. And then this happens. So talk about lowest lows and highest highs and then lowest lows again. But here's another interesting matter to note regarding the context. The author, the author has already told us how it's going to end. Daniel chapter 1 verse 21 says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, the author tells us how chapter 2 is going to end from the beginning of chapter 2. Daniel's not going to die. He's not going to lose his arms and legs. But the author means to take us down to the depths and up to the heights and then down and then up again. He takes us forward in time. He takes us then backward in time and then forward again. We're shown events happening simultaneously but from different perspectives. That's the book of Daniel. It reads like a Christopher Nolan movie. You'd think you were watching Dunkirk where you see three things happen, three different time frames. It heightens our awareness of the limits of the human mind to resolving the mysteries of space and time and God's providence in fulfilling His divine purpose in human history. We feel, we read this and we feel small. And we're supposed to. It's the author's intent. No matter how big, how bad, how powerful, how threatening, how imbalanced and brutal are the rulers and authorities and kings and kingdoms of this world, no matter how shocking or sudden are the twists and turns in the storyline of history or our own lives, no matter the limitations of human competency, the Chaldeans get one thing right. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. How ironic (laughs) that those who practice the dark arts would proclaim the truth that only a God who becomes flesh, only a God who makes His dwelling with flesh can see and interpret and untangle and resolve the most difficult dilemmas in the world. So, wait. Hold on. Don't panic. 
As desperate as things may seem to be, there is a God present at work doing stuff. He reigns over history. His providence guarantees that all that He has made, all of creation, everything, health, politics, nature, weather, this includes tornadoes and fires and hurricanes and viruses and those appointed to governing office. All that He is made is going precisely where He means for it to go. Are there real dangers and toils and snares? Of course. But knowing that God is reigning over everything and has written the end at the beginning, that changes everything. It changes everything. What does it change? Well, it changes, it's meant to change, our response. It changes our reaction to trials and troubles. Look at verses 14 to 16. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. <laughs> so, so, so what if there is no God? Or if there is a God, what if God is just aloof or inactive or just can't figure out all the things that are going on in the world ahead of time? What if God is uninvolved in our personal circumstances and we are at the mercy of nature or at the mercy of biology or at the mercy of the whims of those over us? Where does the rubber meet the road here? How do you react to difficult people and difficult circumstances? Nebuchadnezzar was difficult. He was emotionally unstable. He was at times irrational, unfair, unjust, unable to govern himself. He's a classic borderline personality disorder from what I read. Daniel, meanwhile responded to trials and troubles quite differently. He responded with prudence and discretion. Now keep in mind, we need to remember this, Daniel and company are still young. Very young. Verse 1 says these dreams were troubling Nebuchadnezzar in the second year of his reign. Just the second year. That... That means that Daniel was most likely still just a teenager. Why are some people's reactions to troubles over the top? Why kill? Why set cities on fire? 
is it not because to so many there is no God and certainly no God to be feared whose active presence one can truly count on? And why is Daniel's reaction so different? Even his reaction to Nebuchadnezzar's command to kill all the wise men is is muted. In verse 15, Daniel asks the guy who came to take him out, why is the decree of the king so urgent? (laughs) Why command mass executions over a dream? Daniel is a member of an ethnic and religious minority living in an unfriendly city. He is charged with something for which he is not responsible. The police are at his front door. A gun is pointed at his head. It's a volatile moment. You you flinch here, you run here, you protest here, and your life could be over. And what does Daniel do? He invites Arioch, the man sent to kill him, in for a little talk. The teenager diffuses a very tense situation. And then what does he do? Look at verses 17 through 19. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Oh yeah. And by the way, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So Daniel calls his God-centered friends together. Daniel, remember? El, God's name. Hananiah, God's name. Mishael, Azariah. I mean, just by recording these names, the author is sending a message to us. In your day of trouble, what do you do? Call on the Lord God Almighty. The right response to desperate times is desperate prayer. You know, you ask anybody in our household, Psalm 50, 15 is my go-to promise. Psalm 50, 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And it seems like every day is the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Daniel's first impulse, and he had to have learned this somewhere, right? This had to have been modeled. This had to have been demonstrated, taught, explained. His first impulse was not... Brothers, we need a plan. His impulse was not, Brothers, this is unjust. His first impulse, young Daniel's first impulse was, 
brothers, we need God. We need God to show us mercy. We need God to stoop down and make His presence, His dwelling real among flesh. We need God to deliver us in this day of trouble. I may have said this before, so if so, forgive me, but it's a lesson that I've been just kind of <laughs> soaking in for the last year or so. I, I'm mindful of how often I use a little, little phrase. It's a telling phrase. It's the phrase, i got to figure this out. i just got to figure this out. Or once I get this figured out, then I'll that, 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 that. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with those words in and of themselves, right? I mean, sometimes we, we need to stop and think and figure things out. But it reveals something of kind of a default mindset. Namely, I have to figure things out. I have to deliver. I have to solve the mystery. My first impulse in my day or time of trouble is, it's up to me. (laughs) It depends on me. And I've been more and more mindful that if that is my default impulse, then my reaction to a desperate situation is more likely to be me-centered than God-centered. I think we're all hardwired to rely first of all on ourselves than we are to turn first of all toward God. And for this, we desperately need a change of mind change of our framework. In other words, for this, we need to repent. That's because self-reliance is at the heart of every other sin. Self-reliance, friends, think of it this way. Self-reliance is a call to worship. A call to bend the knee to me. But humble acknowledgement of our limitations and need for God is at the heart of every act that amplifies the praise, praise the glory of God. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will, what? Glorify me. And that's because the one who delivers is the one who always gets the glory. Daniel called his companions to pray for God's mercy because they didn't have the power to undo this madman's decree. Loved ones, God is the only true crisis manager. And crisis is very often the very instrument that God uses to draw us into deeper dependence on Him. Daniel did not let this present crisis rob him of his experience of God's spiritual support. If you're in trouble and prayer has been, if prayer has not been your first response, well then, friends, make it your next response. Notice what happens next. This is the last second half of verse 19. Then, Surprise, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. They'd called out to God in the day of trouble. 
God acted in mercy, God delivered them, and they glorified God. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. We might be tempted to think right here that since God had revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel, problem solved, mystery unfolded, crisis over. We might be tempted to think that. Easy peasy. Let's worship. You know, it's... It's so easy to praise God when we get what we ask for that we oftentimes forget to praise God when we get what we ask for. We express our exultation in Him with unashamed expressiveness when He breaks through with discernible mercy and power. But what about our worship when the answer that God gives or the deliverance that He supplies does not necessarily resolve the problem the way we had hoped. So keep in mind, Daniel had received the revelation from God regarding the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. You know, raise your hands, jump for joy, sing with gusto. But now what happens? What happens? How will the borderline personality disorder react to the interpretation of the dream. Pick it up in verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen? And its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living 
but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And finally, we get to the moment we've all been waiting for. Here's the dream. <laughs> you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. And of course, this is the hard part, right? <laughs> so, Daniel buckles his seatbelt. Here it comes. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. 
The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Loved ones, easy-peasy worship is what happens when we gather together here like this. We engage with God with no fear except, <laughs> except perhaps what the fear of what our dearly loved brothers and sisters will think of us if we get a little carried away. Um, dangerous worship, however, is what happens when we step outside and we scatter through our city. Dangerous worship is what happens when we build relationships with the immigrants and refugees in our city. Dangerous worship is when we engage in spiritual conversations with neighbors and loved ones who have no idea what it really means to be joined to Jesus in his sin-atoning death and resurrection life. Dangerous worship is what happens when we give a humble and discretionary explanation to our colleagues or neighbors or friends, even our family members for our prudent reaction to the desperate times we face. And so, where does that come from? How are we able to worship this way? Easy worship comes easy. Dangerous worship, I believe, is a heartfelt response to what God has supernaturally revealed of Himself in the past, in the present, and in the future. You see, Daniel and company were empowered to bless God, praise God. In the face of danger, because they had seen God deliver them already once in the past, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 19, in their day of trouble, they prayed, the Lord gave them better appearance, better health than all those who had eaten the king's food. The Lord gave them ten times more superior learning skills. Boy, you know, you kids that are students should really pay attention to this. Ten times more understanding and wisdom and understanding than anybody else in the king's service. They had seen God do what no human could do. And then Daniel and company were empowered to worship in these dangerous times because they had seen God deliver them in their present crisis. In their day of trouble, they prayed and the Lord had miraculously made known to Daniel the king's dream and its interpretation. They had seen God do what no human could do. And Daniel and company, I believe, were empowered to worship because they knew, they were given the faith to believe that God would continue to deliver His people in the future. Because you see, the climax of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a rock. And this rock, this stone, was a revelation from God of a future and coming kingdom unlike any other. It would be a supernatural kingdom cut from a mountain by no human hand. It would be an indestructible kingdom, never to be destroyed. It would be the ultimate kingdom, not left for another people. It would be the final kingdom that would bring all other kingdoms to an end and would stand forever. 
it would be a mysterious kingdom, not of gold, silver, iron, but of stone. It would be set up in the days, in the days, the times of those other kings. And, and it would start small, but though small in its beginning, it would become a great mountain and ultimately fill the whole earth. Friends, this rock is Jesus the Christ. And his coming is the mystery of the ages that has now been revealed in advance, supernaturally, by God's grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit to those who live in the fullness of the times. He is the stone that the builders rejected. And he has become the capstone. His is the kingdom, like the smallest of seeds, but it's growing growing, spreading to the mightiest of trees, to all the nations and languages and peoples. And those who stubbornly refuse to submit to Jesus will ultimately be rejected by Jesus. And all who reject this capstone will be crushed by it and just blown away like summer chaff. For Daniel and for Nebuchadnezzar, this coming rock it was something centuries out in the future. For us, this rock is both past and future. Jesus has come. He has established His kingdom. When He came and appeared, He said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And if you have never bowed the knee of your heart to Him, and called upon Him for mercy and forgiveness for your sins, then now is the time to take that step. And though Christ's kingdom is growing and spreading throughout the world today, in spite of all the troubles, in spite of all the desperateness, these times still do include great troubles and, and tribulations. But we can, we can be hopeful that in, in these desperate days, as they rise and fall until the day returns, the, the end is not yet, but those who endure to the end will be saved. And so we also look forward to the return of this rock and the coming fullness of His kingdom. And until that day, we call on Him in our days of trouble and we worship Him with danger in our faces, risky dangers, Spreading the good news of his supernatural, indestructible, ultimate kingdom and kingship until some from every language join us in proclaiming him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if such a revelation caused a proud, narcissistic, irrational, unjust, unpredictable, brutal man to tremble and lie awake at night, 
then how much more would it be fitting for those who have beheld your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus bow and tremble before such a sovereign king over all. There is a God in the heavens who reigns over everything. He's above everything. You are above all things. And you have humbled yourself and become flesh and dwelt among us and revealed your glory. This is a mystery. It is a precious mystery. It is a treasure worth more than millions and millions and millions. Holy Spirit, come and open the eyes of our hearts to behold such a mystery. And incline our hearts to turn to this great God over all. In our time of trouble, our day of trouble, our circumstances that are troubling. And we would ask, oh God, that you would have mercy. And that you would keep this promise. The, a, one of the many, many, many promises secured for us through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of deliverance. And do it all, Lord, so that you would be glorified and honored. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.